Man, I am uh, grateful for the Word of God, uh, grateful that we uh, have such easy access to it. Uh, I think I've told you before that if you all came and listened to me for 35 minutes a week share my opinions and thoughts and ideas about things, you would be foolish. But we come and part of our gathering together is we open up His Word that we might know Him, that we might better know ourselves, that we might better understand the world around us and how we're supposed to live our lives in it. So I am thankful to God that He has given us His Word. Our custom in the church here is that we go through a book of the Bible on Sunday morning, verse by verse, starting at the beginning and working our way to the end. So I just look back this week, over the last 10 years now, just in Sunday sermons, this isn't counting like Bible studies and youth group and things that we've done, we have made it all the way through 12 Old Testament books and 14 New Testament books. That means we're now more than halfway through all of the books of the New Testament, and we're just going to keep going. We've got a lot left to go, 13 more books in the New Testament and 27 more books to go in the Old Testament. And I'm so grateful for the Word of God and just the way it all fits together. Maybe you've thought about this before, but the fact that every single word inspired by the Holy Spirit, but written by human authors, right? 40 plus authors writing on three different continents over a period of more than 1,500 years. That's what we have in Scripture. 66 books written by 40 plus authors on three different continents over a period of 1,500 plus years, and it tells just one story. And at the very center of that story is the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ, who Jesus is, what He's done, that we might know Him and be reconciled to God through Him. So, I'm very grateful for this Word. And if you know a little bit about how the Bible is put together, in Awana, there's a lot of kids right now, I can't remember which grades are working on it, but you're working on memorizing the books of the Bible, and you just memorize like how many are there. 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament. So if you look how your Bible's put together, the first 39 books are what we call the Old Testament. They are, they are explaining to us who God is, how God works, and all pointing ahead to Jesus. And then we get to the New Testament, and the first four books we call the Gospels, or more appropriately, the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, and the Gospel according to John. They explain to us who Jesus was, what He did, and then in the books to follow, we find out what happens next, why all of it matters, and what's coming still in the future. So that's just the Bible kind of in a nutshell, and today we are beginning a series. We're going to go verse by verse through the book of Luke. So if you want to open up in your Bible to the Gospel according to Luke, if you don't know where that is in the Bible, you have a table of contents in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, let me know and we will get one into your hands. We want you to have a copy of God's Word open in front of you as we walk through it together. While you're turning to Luke, quick Bible trivia. Which human author wrote the most books in the New Testament? Yep, not, yep, Paul. Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books. That's almost half of the books in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. Which human author wrote the second most books? It is five books. Which human author wrote five books in the New Testament? 
John. Yep, he wrote the gospel according to John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Okay? So, those are the authors. 13 books by Paul, 5 books by John. Who wrote the most words in the New Testament? You'd think maybe Paul or John, but actually the answer is Luke. Luke is responsible for writing two books in the New Testament, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and you add up all the words in Luke and Acts, and they equal more than the words in either all of the books of John or all of Paul's letters. Okay? So, so, so Luke wrote a lot, um, and we're going to be looking today at like volume one of his two-volume work, called Luke-Acts. We're just going to be looking at Luke. Not too many years ago, we went through the entire book of Acts. Now, kind of like we did the sequel first, and now we're going back to look at the gospel of Luke. Luke was the author of this book. That's why they call it the gospel according to Luke. And Luke was not one of the original 12 disciples, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the four gospels, Matthew and John were of the 12 disciples. Mark and Luke were not. Luke was a doctor and a historian who traveled with Paul. He's the only author of the New Testament we know for sure was, almost for sure, was not a Jew. There's a couple people that have kind of an idea like, oh, he might have still been a Jewish person. More than likely, he is the only Gentile author of a book in the New Testament. He is a doctor, he's a historian, he traveled with Paul, and his account comes from a lot of eyewitness testimony and interviews and research, which we're going to see today. So today, we begin what will be a long, fascinating, certainty-producing journey through the gospel of Jesus according to Luke. And we're going to look today at just one sentence, that's it. Uh, Verses 1 through 4 are this very purposeful prologue in the book of Luke, and it's just one sentence. And so, if you're able to, would you stand as we read the very Word of God? Let's pray first. God, I thank you. This is, this is a gift to have from you your Word. And I pray that you, by your Spirit, would convince us this morning that it is true, that it is trustworthy, and that that through believing it, through your Spirit's work in opening up our eyes, that you would produce in us a greater certainty that leads us to greater faithfulness and obedience to you for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's hear the first four verses then of the Gospel according to Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Amen. You can be seated. Inside your bulletin, there is a sermon notes page that also has the life group guide with some questions for you uh, as you gather together with others. And if you're not in a life group and want to be, let us know. Uh, otherwise, you can also use them just in, on your own study or with your family. But you see in the outline there, we're just looking at this one sentence, not breaking it down really by structure like I usually do, but just asking some questions where we'll look at every part of every verse of this 
beginning, this prologue. First question is this, what is this? What are are we about to do? We're going to be spending a lot of weeks looking at what this book, what, what is this? Well, a couple of things. It is a story. It's narrative in its form. He he speaks at the beginning of other people who have done a similar thing. They've compiled a narrative. Okay? Another way that we would say narrative is just a story. So it's a narrative, and he calls it in verse 3 an orderly account. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you. So it's a it's a story, it's got an order to it. If you just a quick preview so we know what we're getting into, and by the way, as we walk through the gospel, we're going to do a portion of it, and then we'll probably take a break and go somewhere else for a bit, and then we'll do a portion of it again, and so it'll take some time to get through the gospel according to Luke. But if you think about a story, a story, a good story, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It goes somewhere. There's characters, there's setting, there's a plot, and that's what Luke has put together. It's a narrative, it's a story. If you look, I put up on there, here's kind of the beginning. We've got purpose, plan, and preparation in the opening four chapters. Then we move on to Jesus' ministry, first in Galilee, and then this shift in 951, where he starts moving toward Jerusalem. We probably won't get to that part until 2024. And then we're going to end with Jesus in Jerusalem, his death and his resurrection. And really, it's not really an ending, because it's more like a to-be-continued-in-the-next-volume the book of Acts. So that's just kind of the structure, the outline, this orderly account that he's giving. And so he introduces right at the beginning, I'm writing an orderly account in story form. And he notice, notice this in verse 1, he also says, of the things that have been accomplished among us. This is what others have done and this is what he's doing. He's writing specifically of the things that have been accomplished among us, particularly the things that Jesus has accomplished among them. Your translation might even use the word instead of accomplished, it might use the word fulfilled. Because Luke is trying to help people see how what Jesus came to do and what Jesus did was a fulfillment or an accomplishment of the things that had long been laid out for him to do in all of the rest of Scripture. Okay? So, so that's what this is. This is a story, a true story, that has a form to it that's about what has been accomplished or fulfilled among us in the person of Jesus. So if I'm summarizing what is this, I would say this. This is a true story about Jesus. What is Luke? Luke is the true story or an orderly account of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. Okay? So if you just want to know what is Luke, Luke is a true story, an orderly account of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. Next question, how was it written? Luke tells us in these first verses something about how it was written. I would say one way you could say, describe how it was written is carefully. He used sources. He already, I already mentioned, you know, we saw this right at the beginning. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative, right? He's heard things from eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, you see there in verse 2. Things that have been delivered to us. So, so 
what we'll notice as we walk through this is just how much care Luke gives. And, and one thing we won't see as clearly is all of the work that has gone into him giving us this orderly account. Remember that I mentioned earlier, Luke is a doctor who traveled with the Apostle Paul. And, and if we remember if we went, when we went through the book of Acts, we noticed uh, there were times where all of a sudden, instead of saying they and them, it was we and us. Because there were times when Luke was traveling with Paul and some of the other people in the book of Acts. Right? And so part of his traveling, he was with them when they went to Jerusalem. And this is all just a few years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So he had all sorts of opportunity to talk to these eyewitnesses. Right? So he's talking to people who had seen and heard all of these things that Jesus did, and he is now taking all of these, putting them together in an orderly account. So he's doing it carefully. Verse 3 says, he's followed all things closely for some time past. He's a doctor, he's a historian, he's talking to eyewitnesses, he's going to original sources, and he's been doing this research for some time now. And he's also writing, another way we find out something about how it's written, is we, we see that it's written and addressed to, or you might say dedicated to, a particular person. Did you notice that? Like, where'd that guy come from? He says, it's an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Well, what's, what's that all about? Well, as you look at literature from this time and the way that literature was produced and distributed, what was necessary is, now this is, this is a rough comparison, it's not totally the same thing, but if you want word to get out to a lot of people today, well, you got social media. Okay, so a few years ago, if you wanted word to get out to a lot of people, we depended on like something getting published, like a book needing to go out. So we would turn to a publisher who would get things out. What Theophilus, who Theophilus most likely was, was he was a rough equivalent of a publisher. A wealthy patron, somebody who had come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, who had been taught much, who had put his faith in Jesus, and has a desire, and he's got a lot of money and means to make this happen, has a desire that a number of other people would also hear Luke's orderly account. Okay? So, so he's going to, so then the book, in a sense, is dedicated to Theophilus. We even do this in books. If you look at a book that you've written today, you might open up a book and find that a book is dedicated to a certain person. Right? The author might write right in the front, to such and such. That doesn't mean they're the only person supposed to read the book. It's just dedicated to that person, right? So this book is not just like, oh, we're reading Theophilus's mail. That's not it at all, right? This book dedicated Theophilus, and Theophilus desired, along with Luke, and especially desired the Holy Spirit, that this, the Word of God written by the hand of Luke, would be distributed widely to all kinds of people, okay? To all kinds of people is going to be another key. And one of the things that's harder for us to see as we just look at verses 1 to 4, there is a clue in the way that this is written that points to the fact that this was intended to go out to all kinds of people. And the clue is the fact that Luke is the only one of the four gospel writers who starts his gospel with this prologue. The other gospel writers don't do that, but Luke is following the form 
of a lot of other Greco-Roman writing at that time. Because it seems that Luke's desire is not just that that other Jewish people, most of the first Christians, you remember, had grown up in the Jewish faith. His desire is not just that only Jewish people would hear this message, but that Gentiles too, including the most serious thinkers and philosophers of that day. And so he writes in a form that would be familiar to them and would gain their respect as well. Luke's, Luke, so when I, when I was in seminary and took Greek, we translated John's stuff. Because John, he was a very intelligent man, but he didn't know nearly as many words as Luke. And so elementary Greek students like I was when I was in seminary, we could translate John and we'd open Luke. He's like, man, that's a lot of big words that guy uses. He was a smart guy. He was a doctor. He was a historian. And he was writing in a way that, that was accessible to even the, the kind of top thinkers and philosophers of the time. And so... How is it written? Very carefully, very well researched, but also for all kinds of people. One thing we'll notice, by the way, as we walk through the book of Luke, is his emphasis on Jesus, Israel's Messiah, coming for all kinds of people. Luke, more than any of the other gospel writers, is going to highlight how Jesus continually seeks out the people that everybody else has pushed over to the side. All the people that nobody in society really cares about, they think they're second-class citizens, women, children, all sorts of other people. In Luke, we're going to see an emphasis on how Jesus goes right after those people. Jesus has come for all kinds of people, and Luke is written for all kinds of people. So, summary of how was it written, I would just say this. This is trustworthy and written to be accessed by all kinds of people. Another reason I say it's trustworthy is not only all of the research that he did, but this is written likely in the mid-50s or 60s in the first century. So if he was writing things that weren't true, there would have been all sorts of eyewitnesses still around who would have debunked everything he wrote. Right? He's writing what is true. He's researched it well, and he's writing it close to the time of the events so that if he was writing anything that had error, it would have been debunked. But there wasn't. Right? This was trusted even right away, and it continues to be trusted today. It is the very Word of God. So it's trustworthy. And then finally, the final question before we get to some application is why was it written? Why was it written? We assume that it was written because the Holy Spirit inspired Paul, because, sorry, inspired Luke to write it. We see that from other passages of Scripture. He doesn't make that clear here in the first four verses. But here's what he does say, verse 3. Verse 3 begins with these words. It seemed good to me also. Okay? Other people have written things. It seemed good. One of the reasons it was written is it seemed good to Luke to do it. Right? It seemed good to him to do it. It seemed good to him to take all of these things and put them together in an orderly way. One thing that Kirsten did, uh, committed to before our kids were born, and I'm so, so thankful she did it, is she made covering these like memory books that cover the first year of each of our kids' lives. It includes pictures, it includes all sorts of stories, things that if she had not written those down, 
we would have quickly forgotten. Things that we can now look back and remember and things that we can pass on to other people. Like as our kids move out of the house, I think our plan is we'll hand them these books and they can have their kids look at them. All of these stories written in an orderly way. I'm grateful that Kirsten did that. It seemed like a good idea. Likewise, it seemed like a good idea to Luke that all of these things that are being shared orally would be put together in an orderly account in written form. Makes sense, right? And then also, verse 4 tells us another reason it was written. Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Why does Luke write this gospel? That the readers might have certainty concerning the things that they have been taught. The assumption is the people that are first going to read Luke's gospel are people that have already heard the gospel, have heard some things about Jesus and what he came to accomplish. And he's writing to them that they might have certainty. Because times are going to get tough and they're going to hear lots of other teaching. And if they are going to grow in their trust, they're going to need to grow in their confidence in their certainty that the things that they're staking their lives on are worth staking their lives on, right? He wants them to grow in certainty. So, summarizing why was it written? This is written to give the reader certainty about Jesus. Luke is written to give the reader certainty about Jesus. All right, so, if Luke is a true and trustworthy story about Jesus written so that all kinds of people would have certainty about who he is and what he accomplished. So what? What does that mean for us? This is the application portion. And I've got two points. We're going to spend more time on the second one because I think they take some explaining. Here's why. We're going to devote hours, hours, weeks, months, years to looking through this. Why are we going to do that? We're going to do that, one, because we we need to listen. We need to listen to this story. No matter how many times we've heard this story, we need to hear this story again. You know, stories affect us, don't they? Isn't that part of the reason that we watch a movie, read a book, listen to a story from somebody else? Because stories affect us. They cause us to wonder. They cause us to be in awe. They cause us to ask questions, to dig deeper Sometimes stories make us laugh. Sometimes stories make us cry. Sometimes stories give us goosebumps. Sometimes stories are just enjoyable, right? So so we want to, knowing that this is a story and a true story, we want to just enjoy it. We want it to affect us. We want it to make us laugh sometimes or cry sometimes. We want it to move us, to change us, to be molding us. So we listen And we invite others to listen. We invite other people to listen. You ever notice, I notice this, you guys maybe, I probably do more public speaking than a lot of you do by preaching every week. And I notice that there are times, and I'm not going to point fingers at any of you, uh, but there are times when I'm preaching and it looks like somebody's about to fall asleep. And then, and then I start telling a story and the person that looked like they were falling asleep, like, oh, story time. Like, I'm in, right? Like, all of a sudden, like, stories are engaging. We like to listen to stories. You've been around, like, family members 
where like this story's been told before and I don't care because I want to listen again, right? Or maybe you're the guy who like, I've told this story before and whether anybody wants to hear it or not, I'm going to tell it again, right? We, but people are engaged by stories. And so let me just use this as a reminder, like church, like what we're doing here, this is, this is not just for us. We want other people to hear the story. There's no better story for other people to hear than the story about who Jesus is and what he has done and why it matters. And so every week, we're going to be doing that. You know some people who are either at a church where they never hear the gospel, they just do nice things and the gospel's never taught, or a ton of people in our community, not in a church at all, and you work with them, you live by them, they're in your family, right? Invite them to come, right? Just like, we're, we're going to be, like, this is an engaging story. Luke is an engaging story, and invite them to come. Maybe they don't come to church because they've, like, they've got some questions, and they don't know what the answers are, and they think the church is the place for the people that have got it all figured out. Maybe they're broken, and they're messy, right? They're broken, they're messy, and they need to know that there's something a little more certain that they can build their lives on. Maybe they've been hurt from people that act like they're certain about everything before. I hope they come. Let's just let them know. Like, here, here, here's, like, I'll give you your line. I'll give you, here's your line. Like, hey, I don't know what you do normally on Sunday morning, uh, but I go to be with a group of people that are, do a pretty good job of loving each other, and, uh, and we sing together, we do some other things. And right now, we're, we're just walking through the, the true story about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And I, I don't know exactly what, you know, all of your history with the church or with, with, with Jesus is, but, I, but I, bet, I bet you would be engaged by this. Like, our pastor's kind of weird, but at least he preaches from the Bible. Like, just, just come and join and join me. Like, how about this? Can I pick you up on Sunday? And then you can sit with us so it's not that awkward for you, right? That, that's, your, that's your line, right? Something like that. Just invite other people to hear. And then number two. Number two. If Luke is a true and trustworthy story about Jesus, so what? We need to go over it again and again so that we grow in certainty. That's why Luke said he was writing it so that the people reading it would grow in certainty. We need to do that. Let, let's, let me just explain something that I've been thinking a lot about this week. In fact, I think if, if they have it scheduled right, the, the Time Citizen will have an article this week from me uh, about, about this topic. And that is this, that a lot of the way our culture talks about faith is they talk about faith like it's wishful thinking or a blind leap. That's the way our culture really looks at faith. Like it's wishful thinking you know, like, I have faith that my Vikings will be in the Super Bowl next year. That's wishful thinking. That's all that that is, right? Or, or just like some blind leap. Many of you maybe have, have read something by this atheist influencer named Richard Dawkins. He wrote this. Here's what he says about faith. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of or even perhaps because of the lack of evidence. Basically just saying, listen, if you're weak and you don't like to think about stuff, then faith is for you. 
That's what this atheist influencer has to say. And he's dead wrong. Faith is not for dumb people who don't like to think about stuff. Right? Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. How many of you have been on the giant swing at Hidden Acres? Some of you have been there? Okay, Charlie, would you be willing to answer a couple of questions or no? Yes? Okay, a couple of questions. Charlie, do you want to come up here so I can ask you the questions? Or do you want to just sit there? You come up. Excellent. Great. Charlie didn't know she was going to be doing this today. Uh, well, hey, while we're up here, everybody, can you just look at this? Here's what, the, so you know what we're talking about. I think I've got a little video clip of what it looks like on the giant swing at Hidden Acres. Is this going to work? Let's see. So they're being pulled up a little bit further. Charlie, is it true they ask you if you want to go halfway up or all the way up? Yeah, okay. Then someone pulls the string. Okay, so so you're getting pulled up, and then somebody up there or somebody on the ground? No, somebody up there. Like, the person in the middle, they just, like, pull the string. Like, they just reach back and pull it. And you have to quickly put your hands back on the bar. Okay, yeah. Okay, so let me ask you a couple questions about this, Charlie. Um, That looked scary. Was it scary? Um, yeah, but then it, like, I went on it once, and it was scary, but the second time, it's not as scary. Okay, excellent. So why did you do it? Because, like... You didn't have to, right? Yeah, you didn't have to. Okay, why did you do it then? Because I thought it would be fun. Okay, so this looked like fun, uh, and it was scarier the first time than it was the second time. Another question, did you die? No. You did not, excellent. Um, How did you know that that wasn't going to be how it ended? Like, how did you know that you weren't going to die? Um, Because I saw a lot of people ride on it before me, and they didn't die. Excellent. Yeah. Like, everybody else got down, right? And, and like, if you look, I mean, there was posts there, and, you like, you didn't go test how deep into the ground they were, but you kind of assumed, like, these must be in the ground pretty deep. Yeah. What are, like, is that cables or chains or something? Yeah, it's chains. Okay. Yeah. So all sorts of evidence that she could just quickly look at and determine, like, this is not just some blind leap. I'm doing this because I think, like, the cables are going to hold me. The post is going to hold me. I saw other people before me do it, and none of them died. I think I'm going to be okay. Excellent. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Charlie. Great questions, or great answers. So faith is not a wishful thinking or blind leap. I think a better biblical understanding of faith is this. Trust based on truth that leads to action. Trust based on truth that leads to action. I put a couple of images up there uh, to, to maybe help us understand this a little bit more. So like, this is a concept that seems like it could just kind of be like philosophy out there. I'm just trying to like ask Charlie those questions and put these pictures up. And I got one more kind of illustration that I think will help us just kind of cement this in our mind. Faith is, is not just like this kind of like, well, here's some facts, and faith is just like something else floating off over here, unrelated to or, or disconnected from the facts. That's not it. Our faith is based on facts. Our trust is built on truth. Now, faith is more than just believing the right facts, right? It's more than that, because the devil believes the right facts, but, but faith is, is seeing reality and putting your, your trust in what you've 
seen, revealed to you as true. I, I listened to uh, John Piper on this. Here, here's one thing he said. I don't think I have it up there, but here's what he said. You cannot honor God by saying, I trust you, but I have no reason to trust you. That's not honoring to God, is it? He just says, if we're evangelizing someone and they say, I don't see it, we don't say, well, believe it anyway. We say, oh, let me show you more, right? And then we go home and we pray like crazy that God would open up their eyes to see what is truth. What is now, like they're, they're living in the dark and we pray that God would open up their eyes that they would see what is true, that they would put their faith in something that is worth standing on, that they would put their trust in something that is true. If faith or trust is based on truth that leads to action, then the more I'm convinced of the truth, the more trust I have. Right? So, so here's one of the goals, I think, for the book of Luke, that we would become more and more certain of the truth. The truth, the truth isn't going to get any wider, but our understanding of it might get wider. Our understanding of it might get deeper. We might come to understand more and more, oh no, this faith that I have, this trust that I have, it's not just some blind faith. It's grounded on something very real. So here's the final illustration to kind of help us get this. I was going to bring uh, goods, and then i like, oh, I don't think I should bring goods. This could be dangerous. So just imagine this with me. Okay, imagine that you are called to do some kind of task and it is up high, therefore you need a ladder. But imagine that this work that you need to do is above an area that's really uneven and really muddy. And so you have this extension ladder and I've got work to do up here, but I'm going to set this ladder down and the ground is all like muddy and uneven. I would be very hesitant uh, to put much of my weight on that ladder, not knowing what's going to happen. So I'm not going to move up the ladder very far or get the work done because I just don't totally trust that mud. Now, if you saw my predicament and you were just like, oh, yeah, it is all muddy. You probably need something a little more solid. So you just got a wheelbarrow full of bricks and you brought it over to me and you dumped it at the base of my ladder. So now I just got this pile of bricks. Now that's a little more uh, trustworthy uh, than the mud and uneven ground. And I might be willing to put my ladder on there and put a little bit of weight and kind of test it out a little bit. But I would be even more likely to climb the ladder and get that work done and take care of the task I've been called to do if we would take those bricks and start putting them together in an orderly way, stacking them up and creating a firm platform on that uneven, muddy ground so that that was something I could put my ladder on and start to walk up and do whatever I've been called to do. One of my hopes as we go through the Gospel of Luke is that we're just, we're just going to do what Luke is doing. He's writing this that we might become more certain of what we've already been taught. That we, as these bricks kind of get put together and the platform gets built wider and deeper and stronger, we're going to grow in our trust that this, this will hold me. When I fear my faith will fail, we just saying, he will hold me fast. Like, I, I know this to be true. The more I know to be true about this is who Jesus is, this is what he's done, this is good news. Like, the more I believe this, the more willing I'm going to be to stake my life on it. And so, Luke's goal for the book and my goal for this sermon series are going to be the same. 
that we would have an orderly foundation of rock-solid bricks on which we can put all of our weight, that we're going to have some more facts underneath our faith, that we're going to build up the truth around the trust that we have, that there would be something that we would have that's more certain, that would give us confidence to step up in greater obedience to live in a Christ-like way. What the Bible says about who Jesus is and what he accomplished, it matters for us and for everybody around us. And it is something we are staking our lives on. And so I'm looking forward to some time in Luke in the weeks, months, years ahead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your son. Thank you uh, that by your Holy Spirit you carried Luke along to write down every single word in this orderly account so that we could grow more certain. And we pray that you just do that. Would you open up the eyes of those who are blind so that they might see the light of the gospel of the glory in the face of Christ? And would you help those of us who do trust in Jesus as we go through the gospel according to Luke to to gain a deeper understanding of the truth so that we might grow in trust that leads to obedience? Would you help us to be more certain so that we can be more confident in our obedience to you, to, 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 to make disciples of all nations, because we trust everything you say in your word. And would you motivate us by your greatness to give ourselves wholly to you? In Jesus' name, amen. amen.